Let's pray together. Father, we need your help. We need your help in racial harmony. We need your help in justice. And we need your help at the depths of our being. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the mouth acts. And so I pray that you would come. And as your word is unfolded, you would produce fruit. The kind we just heard and a hundred other kinds that are so desperately needed in all of our lives and families and culture. So exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that I can ask or think. Work now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So yesterday, I argued that the ultimate reason that God created the world and that Christ died was so that God would be glorified by our being satisfied in him. This creation is about God, not about us. And the issue is how do we then feel or act in order to make him look great? Therefore, I said, the reason for wanting to be declared righteous, wanting to be free from the wrath of God, wanting to have our ransom paid and rescued from hell and everlasting life with no pain and forgiven for all our sins, the reason for all those is so that we would come to God. They, those are all means, glorious means. And the end is Christ suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, bring us to God. And what do we find when we come? Psalm 1611, you show me the path of life, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's why we come to God. The end of our, the end of our quest is God glorified by our being satisfied in him. And I argued that those two go together like that because of Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Then I argued that the implication of our glorifying God through being satisfied in God is that we should seek our satisfaction in him as a lifelong vocation 24-7. Everything hangs on being satisfied in God. If you're a fighter for the kind of justice that we just heard about and you are not doing it for the glory of God and not satisfied in God in the doing of it, two things will happen. Number one, it will peter out because you will not have the courage and the strength to risk it. And number two, if you succeed in measures of it, God will get no glory in it and we'll be right where we were 100 years from now. It was the disappearance of God from the civil rights movement that put us where we are now. Carl Ellis has written a great book called Free at Last, 
which shows and documents the horrific impact on the glory days. So, there is a connection between these two messages. And I hope you hear it. I gave you nine reasons for why, from the Bible, you should passionately seek your joy in God above your joy in anything else, anything else. If God is not number one in your affections and your passions, you're an idolater. And I left out one of those arguments. And that's the one we're dealing with now. And the argument goes like this. I'll state it, explain it a little bit, then go to the Bible and as many, as many arguments as we can pack into 30 minutes, we will do. God's command in the Bible that we love each other is not possible if you are not pursuing your supreme and everlasting satisfaction in God. That's the contention. That's the argument. Loving people is not possible if you are not pursuing your supreme and everlasting satisfaction in God above all of the devil's sinful allurements and all of God's precious gifts. He who loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Or you could say he who loves racial justice more than me is not worthy of me. And I think Chris would say, amen, we'll never get there if it's not second and God is first. In our affections. So for the sake of everything he just said, I speak. That argument that I left out, namely that God, that you can't love people unless you are pursuing supreme satisfaction in God is the horizontal version of yesterday's message. Yesterday I would call vertical Christian hedonism, namely you cannot glorify God if you are not pursuing your supreme satisfaction in God. Today you cannot love people if you are not pursuing your supreme satisfaction in God. Those are the vertical and horizontal dimensions of this understanding of the Bible. Now, behind that contention is an understanding of the nature of love. And I'll define it, and then we'll, we'll get to the Bible. Because you must test all things and see if these things are so. Whether I say it, Chris says it, anybody says it, nobody should care. If the Bible says it, die for it. Okay, that's where we're going. You be good Bereans and test. So here's, here's the claim about the nature of love. People are loved by us when, at any cost to ourselves, including the loss of our lives, when at any cost to ourselves, we seek to expand our joy in God by including them in it. That's my definition of love. Say it again. People are loved by you when at any cost to yourself, you will give yourself to expanding your joy in God to include them in it. 
from every nation on the planet, every race, every socioeconomic level, we will lay down our lives to include others in our supreme and everlasting satisfaction in God, which enlarges our enjoyment of God. Therefore, you never have to choose between loving people and being happy in God. And my argument is you dare not choose because if you cease to pursue the enlargement of your happiness in God, you cannot love people. That's the argument. Now, there are a couple of reasons for why that relationship matters. One, everlasting, all-satisfying joy in God is the greatest gift that you can give to anybody. There are many other gifts that love gives. This is the greatest. To give other gifts indifferent to the greatest is not love. All the other ways of loving people cease to be loving if you don't love them this way. I mean, just this is really plain. If you make somebody 80 years supremely happy and prosperous and don't give a rip whether they suffer for 80 million years, you don't love them. That is just really clear to me. Therefore, the supreme act of love is drawing them in to your enjoyment of God. If you don't have it, you can't give it. Therefore, if you don't pursue it, you can't love. Second reason why this matters or holds is that if you don't have supreme and everlasting joy in God, you will not have the resources to take the, to take the hits and the risk and the pain and the losses that it will require to love people like this, especially people across races, across nations, across religions. Where else does missions come from? The kind of missions that packs your baggage in your coffin. Where does that come from? Total, supreme satisfaction in God. I will be fine no matter what because he is my all. Now, we got to go to the Bible to see if this is so. Argument number one from the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you've got a Bible, which you probably don't, I haven't seen too many at NCS, but there soon, there's a few. So get them out and look at it with me. Because if you don't see it for yourself, if you just hear somebody vaguely talking about things, it will not be very life-changing over the long haul. So here's the key verses. 2 Corinthians 8, I'll read the first couple of verses. Now, what we're looking for in this text is confirmation that love is what he just said it was and that you must pursue joy in God in order to be loving. Okay, that's what we're looking for. Is that true? Is he making that up or is he getting that from the Bible? We want you to know, brothers, here's the situation. Paul is writing to Corinth, lower part of Greece. He's using Macedonians, the uh, upper part of, of the Grecian peninsula, and the, the example of the Macedonians to stir up the Corinthians to, to love. And I'm going to include verse 8 here in verses 1 and 2 because he names it love in verse 8. I want you to know, brothers, about grace about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So grace came down, right? Grace showed up in the churches of Macedonia. And in a severe test of affliction, 
their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Verse eight, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, those folks up in Macedonia, that your love also, that was love. Now your love also is genuine. So what is your definition of love on the basis of 2 Corinthians chapter eight, verses one and two? In a severe test of affliction, abundance of joy, because grace had come down in verse one, abundance of joy in and extreme poverty overflowed in generosity. You got it? You got a definition in your head now of what love is? This is what, this is what you do, right? This is what thinkers do. They get meaning from God's word and live by it. Pray their, themselves into it. So grace had come down and abundance of joy was welling up. In what? Extreme poverty over here, severe affliction over here. These people are hedged in by poverty and affliction and they're just exploding with joy. So what's the joy in? I hate the prosperity gospel because the prosperity gospel cannot handle this verse. They, they say, if, if I can just give you a message that will keep your wife from miscarrying and all your pigs have eight piglets and you never get malaria, we'll export this from America, fly out in our jets and leave you to prosper. No, they don't. This text says that the first response was not that poverty went away and affliction went away. In fact, the affliction increased and joy exploded, which means it's the joy in the grace of God. It's joy in God. And what did it produce? So clear. Overflowed, this abundance of joy overflowed in a wealth of generosity. It's always the poor who are most generous. You guys aren't the most generous. You know that. You've read the statistics. The poor, percentage-wise, always give more than the rich. The rich are, they think they give a lot because they give 10%. Good grief. Most of the people in this room should be living on 10%, right? So, there's no question where generosity comes from. It comes from an a, a unbelievable satisfaction. God is all to me. And when you become that free, that you can let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, home free, make my day, then you will change the world. Without that kind of deep inner resources, everything Chris talked about is gonna abort and America will just keep living off of its high hog selfishness that it has for the last couple of hundred years. So my, here's my definition of love from, from uh, 2 Corinthians 8. Love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. 
straight out of the verse, almost word for word, love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. Let's, let's make it a little more precise. Love is the God-given or grace-enabled, verse one, relation to verse two, love, love is the grace-enabled impulse to expand your joy in God by including others in it. And in this case, extending resources. Even though you're poor and afflicted, the folks in Jerusalem were poorer and you were gonna help them out. That's argument number one from 2 Corinthians 8. Argument number two. 2 Corinthians 9, right across the page maybe in your Bible or scroll down a little bit on your phone. You ought to have a Bible on your phone. If you don't, they're all easy to get. 2 Corinthians 9, you're real familiar with this verse. And I include it because it's in the same two chapters. All of these chapters, 8 and 9, are all about giving, generosity. So he begins with that model of Macedonia and the effect it had on them. And now he's going to draw out some implications here in chapter 9, verse 7 and 8. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a... Really? So how does he feel about non-cheerful givers? Now that's a really tough question, isn't it? Because the opposite of love would seem to be something negative. It, it is negative. I won't name it. You, you, you choose what to name it. God loves a cheerful gift. Now, in the context of 2 Corinthians 8, 2, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed with a wealth of generosity pleading, I didn't read verse four, pleading that they might have the opportunity to give. No, please let us give. Please take another offering. They wanted to do this. This is cheerful. This is desirous. We want to do this. This is making our day. We are loving giving. That's what's happening in 8.2. So when you get over to 9.7, and it says God loves that kind of giving, a cheerful giver it means he, he doesn't love dutiful giving minus joy. doesn't. Feels something else. Grief, anger, disappointment. Therefore, if you are indifferent to the cheer, joy, expanding itself in giving, you can't please God or love people. It's not called love. You can write your check but it won't please God and it won't lead people to delight in God. That's argument number two. 
Argument number three for pastors. Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17. And anybody else, really, who is responsible for a flock of some kind, maybe NCS or King Movement. Here it says, starts out like it's addressing the uh, people in the movement or the church and, and ends up addressing the leader. Obey your leaders, we're at Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy. So people, help, do what you can to help your pastor enjoy the ministry. Isn't that what it says? Let them do, let those leaders do this with joy. Give an account for your souls with joy. Lead with joy. And not with groaning. Okay, you got two, two, two kinds of leaders now. This is so hard. Man, it's hard to be a pastor of this church. You people are so ornery and difficult to deal with. And maybe Jim Lane was here. This NCS crowd is just impossible to work with. Or Chris, it's just this king movement. They're just, that's groan, 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 groan. Oh, poor me. Would somebody feel sorry for me and my leadership, please? So it says, don't, don't let your leaders lead like that. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Whoa, 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 whoa. You follow the logic. If leaders fail to pursue and find their joy in the leading of the church, the caring of a flock, their flock will not be helped. I'll read it again. You gotta hear this. This is not John Piper talking. Let them do this with joy, not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you, which means you can't love your people if you don't delight in God through that ministry for their sake. You, there's a lot of anti-church feeling in this, in this group. I've, I've tasted it. I don't like that, but I understand it. Because there's a lot of sick churches. And you know why there's a lot of sick churches? Sick pastors who groan in the ministry and don't rejoice over their people and rejoice in the Lord. And the people can feel our pastor loves God more than anything. It is so good. It's so to our advantage. Instead, they go... And they can't tell what he loves. He's telling a story here and reading an article there and making some application here. And he's not been with God. So I get that. But you, you guys are big boys. Tim Keller told me that when he wrote me to tell me to come. These are big boys, meaning they can handle it. You're big boys. Grow up and love the church. Love the church. Die for the church. Get into the church. Give yourself to the church. It's the bride. It's the only, 
institution in the world he died for. Love the church. If you don't like it, love it and die for it like Jesus did. He didn't like it. He, he looked at me. He thought he liked me. <laughs> I'm his enemy. He died for his enemies. Hebrews 13, 17 teaches that unless our hearts as leaders are passionately in love with Jesus, we can't be good for our people. Argument number four. Acts 20, 35, very famous verse, but there's a word in it that everybody skips. And ethically, philosophically, the word is controversial. Verse 35, Acts 20. In all things I have shown you. He's just closing his talk to the elders on the beach in Miletus, elders of Ephesus. He loves these people. They're weeping over him. Maybe the last time they see him. It's a moving chapter to me. Any, any elder, any leader would love this chapter, I hope. In, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. What does that mean? Blessed. More blessed to give than to receive. It means you'll be happier if you do it. You'll be more blessed, more rich, more deep, more full, more everything you were made to be. You'll be more. You're a giver than get, 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 gimme, gimme, gimme. Stoke me, honor me, praise me. Instead, living for others. Just pouring your life out for others. You want to be happy in God, not people, in God. Pour that onto people. Die to, to include people in that. Now, I did a doctoral degree at University of Munich on love your enemies. I was reading for those three years, article after article, book after book on ethical motivation. And I read so much to this effect. It's okay to be rewarded for a good deed. It is not okay to want the reward as a motivation for doing the good deed. Now, I grew up in a fundamentalist Bible-believing home and love it to this day. That's why I'm a fundamentalist, I suppose. I love my dad, love my mom. They raised me on the Bible, and I smelled those, those highfalutin philosophical arguments, and I said, that doesn't smell right. That doesn't smell right. Why not? Because this verse is in the Bible. It's not true that you shouldn't want to be rewarded as a motive for loving people. Not true. It's not biblical. Verse after verse after verse opposes that Kantian philosophical ethical notion which has ruined worship and obedience in many cultures. 
This text says, it is more blessed to give than to receive, but the word that's overlooked ethically is the word remember. So if you are trying to love someone and you're finding it difficult, Paul says, remember. You see that word? I've got it. Remember. Remember. What does that mean? It means call to mind what Jesus said so that it has a motivating effect on you. And what did he say? He'll be better for you if you love them. Every ethical thing that I was stumbling over said, forget, forget, forget. Because if you remember it, it will contaminate the moral act. As soon as you remember that this is going to go better for me, you have just become selfish. Not loving. Now you're doing this for you, not them. Boy, that persuades a lot of people. A lot of you. It won't work. You, you can't either Jesus was a very contaminating teacher or that view of life is wrong because Jesus said, and Paul said, remember what I say to you. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, why is that not selfish? Two reasons. Number one, because the good that others are experiencing through our love is what makes us happy. I'm not, I'm not stepping on you to get to my happiness. Sorry. <laughs> I'm happy and you're stepped on. I'm picking you up. I'm going to die to take you with me into this happiness. My, my blessedness isn't leaving you behind. It is more blessed to give because in giving, we're going to take them into the riches that we've been enjoying and we want to enjoy more and more and we know that if we can take them with us, their joy and our joy makes our joy bigger. We're not leaving them. We're not using them. Reward for love includes the participation of the beloved in the reward. If you, if you don't care whether the person you're loving is going to join you in the blessedness that this act of love gives you, you're not loving and you're not pursuing the fullest blessing. A great difference between Christianity and radical Islam is we don't kill to gain paradise. We die as a way of drawing others into paradise. Get that? Let all of Islam know, know this. Your most radical, fringe expressions believe that in killing themselves and others, 
they go to paradise. We believe that along with Jesus, we will die for you so that you possibly might be included with us in paradise. That's the definition of missions. I could call this argument five, but I'll just add it to four, just to confirm that Jesus taught that we, I'm going to skip that. I just looked at my time. Never mind. I'm going to end with uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, 32. Last argument, whatever number it is. The situation is that um, conversion had happened, enlightenment had come in this community, uh, persecution had arisen, some had been thrown into jail, others had been faced with the question of whether we go to jail with them, I mean, whether we take food to them and be identified with them and run, run the risk. It's like right now, I mean, you can picture things in America just like that here, people in big trouble. If we publicly identify with them, then we get in big trouble, and so shall we go underground or shall we be identifying with them? And here's what verse 34 said. Here's the, here's the decision the early Christians made. So this is Hebrews 10, 34. I'll end with this one. For you had compassion on those in prison. So they made the right choice. They made the loving choice. How did they do it? You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, brothers, we are wealthy. All of us in America are wealthy. The poor are wealthy in America compared to the desperately poor in other parts of the world. We are a wealthy people. We don't like it when our, our, our goods are plundered. Somebody write on my wall, Christian, go home. Man, I'm getting mad. Look, look at these miracle people. I pray you'll be like this. I prayed with Marshall before I came up here, up in the room. I said, God, I want to be this sermon. I'm going to preach so over my head down here. I want to be this. I want to be this verse more than I want almost anything. So here it is. You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property or the confiscation of your property. How in the world can anybody be so upside down, so radically different from America? How can anybody be so un-American as to rejoice when they plunder my property? Do you hear it? This is so off the charts radical. Rejoice when they plunder my property because I identified with a person in prison. Relates to what we just heard, perhaps. I identified with somebody in prison and took some hits for it. And those hits made me glad. Is that what it says? It's amazing. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property, but let's end on the ground clause. How did you do that? How did you become that kind of person? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's God, brothers. In your presence, do you hear the two words? Better and abiding, better and abiding, like full and lasting. Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We have a better possession and an abiding one. 
So I end where I began. My one point is God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. My subordinate point is you can't love people unless you are glorifying God by pursuing your fullest satisfaction in him. And that verse I would stake my entire two messages on. All of it in that verse. Verse 34, Hebrews 13, they joyfully, joyfully accepted the plundering of their property, which happened because they loved. And the reason they could rejoice in God like that and love like that is because they knew in the depths of their being, I've got a better and a lasting possession. And his name is Jesus. So Father, I pray that everything Chris said and everything I've said, everything Tim has said, all the breakout sessions would come together with an explosive effectiveness in our lives. Indeed, for drawing as many people as we can into your everlasting joy and making a world that would look so different. I pray this in Jesus' name.